This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of Radar, our monthly Nextworks podcast to talk about innovation strategy and customer experience. And of course, about China as well, because I have here with me Pascal Coppens. Good morning, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. I have Julie Vens de Vos. Hello, Julie. Hello, Stephen. I have Peter Hinsen here. Hi, Peter. Hi, Stephen. And Laurence van Elehem. Hey, Laurence. Goedemorgen. <laughs> Goedemorgen. Goedemorgen. Uh, Julie, you asked me to give the first word to you because you have a thank you message to one of our listeners. Yes, absolutely. I love this uh, podcast even more, I guess. I don't know whether you remember, Stephen, but last time you shared a whole section of the good, the bad and the ugly of customer experiences over summer. Mm -hmm. And I had to share a bit of frustration on the tech platforms and how hard it is actually when you have a problem to reach them and to get a solution because I actually didn't have LinkedIn on my phone anymore and tried like really five to ten times to solve that uh, didn't work. But Radar has really solved my problem uh -huh. uh, because after our uh, conversation, somebody has reached out and in a day or so, the problem has been fixed. Uh, so I really, really wanted to thank uh, that person for reaching out and yeah, reiterating that the human touch in customer experience remains as relevant as it has ever been, Stephen. So yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, happy for you, but I'm disappointed because the good, the bad and the ugly, if you remember, the ugly was Tesla. And I didn't get a phone call from uh, Tesla to talk about those problems. So that's keep complaining. now the disappointment. We keep complaining. This will become a complaining platform <laughs> to solve all our problems. Julie, we were in Japan together last week with about 25 business leaders to discover innovation, to discover the culture of Japan and to try to better understand the people and the culture there in that country. What were your key learnings of that week? Well, um, I focus a bit on organization and work. Uh, and in that regard, Japan is definitely uh, an interesting country to observe. Not that it's all positive and shiny, I would say. Yeah, in the sense that they just plainly don't have enough people, not today and definitely not in the future. As for context, they're the third economy in the world, but they struggle with growth for years, actually. So they're definitely on a road to reconnect to that growth. But that's going to prove difficult if you don't have enough people to actually accomplish that. The government, we've met them on Wednesday, I think, where we sort of had an overview of their goals and their priorities. The good thing is, I think they're definitely aware of that. I think the bad thing is, how fast will it go? By 2030, they will have a deficit of 3.4 million people already. That's really knocking out the door. 11 million by 2040. So it's not enough to just saying, hey, let's have more kids because those kids will age by 2040 and that's already too late. So it's really a pressing issue where there are short term things to do and on the other side it's also longer term systemic things to address so lots of challenges in Japan I think mm -hmm. on the one hand I have seen things they really need to address and on the other things I have also seen things that really play for them and strengths that they could use uh, in that regard I think on the side of what they really need is automation. 50% of the things that they do can be automated, but they don't. So that gives you an idea of the potential. A second one, and uh, one that we are not used to, is the culture gap, I would say. People are extremely respectful for their hierarchy. The boss, the age matters. If you're older, you just get the promotion. 
it explained a lot to me why, for example, the Japanese don't use LinkedIn. It's actually because if you do that, people might think that you want to change jobs and that's not okay. So you can't have a profile on LinkedIn. You can't be active there because otherwise your boss might think, hey, this is somebody who will not be loyal. So that extreme respect is, I think, holding a lot of innovation as well. And the third one that is really different than in all the other places that we've been already is they're really not braggers. I mean, they don't tell the stories. They have great things to share, but they actually apologize for sharing their stories. There was a moment that somebody actually said, we're humble in our pride. So that they really actually apologize for telling the story that is amazing. Or they start a presentation with, let's have 10 minutes of quick presentation, but I don't want to have the word, you should have the word. So that cultural aspect of being more ambitious and sharing more uh, what they want to accomplish is definitely a third thing they need. On the other side, I'm curious how you see that in, in uh, customer experience as well as I think they value performance. Quality first, performance first, everything, the food you get, the things you order, the things you buy. Uh, it really always is, uh, as you mentioned also, Stephen, during the trip, I think an art of. They really take things serious and they start from a good product, a functioning product, and they don't focus too much on the outside UX or, or how it's perceived. They just start from that performance. For me, an example of that, Julie, was at the end of the tour, we had some time to do a little bit of shopping. And the goal of the shopping was to buy Japanese kitchen knives. So you have this, this entire street that is filled with stores who sell Japanese kitchen knives, right? And we had an, an expert with us. And he told us most of these stores are like tourist traps, but there are two very authentic ones, this and this one. So we split the group in two. We went into the store. The revenue of that store exploded in 15 minutes when we entered that place because everybody started to buy expensive knives. But for me, it felt like entering the Harry Potter store where you could buy wands and the wand will choose you. That was There was like this old Japanese gentleman there and he made the knives himself. So he was looking at people and he said, ah, this knife would be perfect for you, I can tell. And then if someone bought one, they took this carbon box from up in the shelf somewhere, just like in the Harry Potter stores. And then they started to pack that knife. It took forever. So for us, it was like, come on, uh, we, we just want to pay. We need to get on that bus. Hurry. But he, he said, no, no, it's very important that we treat this knife with respect. <laughs> and then at a certain point, I, I told him there were three people waiting to buy knives. And I was calculating, so I knew we're gonna we're gonna be late for that bus. And you know me, I'm always nervous when we're late. So I told the Japanese gentleman, I said, we should leave here in about five minutes. And he looked at me and he says, Yeah, yes, I understand. And then he continued <laughs> as slowly as he was. He didn't change his behavior because the craftsmanship for that knife was so crucial to him. It was an amazing experience. I can only great. imagine what the airport security thought when you guys were all showing <laughs> yes, up with Japanese kitchen knives, yeah. right? <laughs> Afterwards, we went to the Belgian embassy and you have a security check there. So I had to say the magical words on the bus, leave your knives on the bus, everyone. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I'm sure in China they would do the same and say these two stores are not a tourist trap, but actually it's exactly these two stores that they put all the tourists in. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure if that's the magic you got. Uh, um, but in China, they would do that very differently. <laughs> it's quite interesting. I'm, I'm also interested, uh, Julie, to understand the demographics, because this is the same problem in China. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's, there's one difference. China has a little bit more people still. 
But why aren't the Japanese making more children? Do you know that? <laughs> That's something we haven't been focusing on. Okay, okay. Uh, but, well, there, uh, is, there is a problem, Julie, we did. Um, there's difficulties for young Japanese men to talk with young Japanese uh, women. Oh, there's, yes, it's a cultural. It's a cultural thing. It's very difficult to reach out to someone that you don't know because it may be unrespectful. So you have a large amount of people, uh, young people who are just bachelors because they're afraid to, to reach out, um, which is slowing down. Is it because of the anonymity of the cities now and, and that basically people are not living within their families and maybe get introduced to friends or... I don't know. Uh, I'm just curious about it. I don't know. Because in China, it's different. In China, it's, it's mostly because it's too expensive. They want all their kids to be the number one. And so they're, sp they're spending like 30% of their salary on, on kids. And if you have two or three kids, well, you have no more salary to eat. So, so that's the problem. Same problem in South Korea, by the way, with uh, you yeah. know, a lot of young men, especially, who don't leave their apartment anymore, are not engaged in social activities. A lot of them are just basically post-COVID used to remote work. And on top of that, there is a huge gaming addiction. So there are hundreds of thousands of young men who don't go out and meet girls anymore. And the government recently gave $500 incentive for young people to go out and engage in social activities, to have a beer, to go bowling. And 300,000 young men took the money to say, okay, okay, then I'll go out for a beer, then I'll go bowling. I mean, I, this is weird, right? I mean, we should, we, yeah. should, we should map that out, you know, the complexity of demographics around the world. Is it also not whenever the prosperity in a society goes up that the demographics go down? Is that also not a thing? Yes, it is. Yes. And the second thing is also if you need more people, there are two ways. Well, there are three ways. There's automation. You can replace them. There's having more babies. But there's also immigration. And I know that Japan is very strict on that. I think they are not very welcoming of immigrants. And that might solve a big part of their problem. It's the same in most uh, Asian countries. I mean, most mm -hmm. of them are monocultures, like mm -hmm. South Korea uh, or Korea, also Japan, China, Thailand. And so these countries usually don't have uh, too much immigration. And Thailand is a little bit different, but that's for different reasons. It's definitely an opportunity, immigration, because they will need it too. Uh, if they really want to automate that much of work, it has to come from somewhere. It has to come from people do, who also understand data, analytics, artificial intelligence. Those are things we haven't heard a lot of when in Japan. So you could see that actually for the corporates, digital transformation is the buzzword right now. I mean, for us, it was 10 years ago. So so uh, can um, I ask a question on that? Um, because that that is fascinating for me, because I remember in the 1990s, I mean, I, I'm that old. <clears throat> Japan was like the king of automation. It was the country where, in terms of industrial automation, they were the first. They were the first to use robots to build cars. They were the first to massively build a robot empire. And for a long time, I think, you know, most of us in the West said, what is the number one country in terms of automation? Boom, Japan. Then there was a huge wave in software development as well. So I think Japan realized that, okay, it's not just robots, it's software. And there was a period, end of last century, where Japan was like the most advanced nation in terms of software engineering. 
because you guys are not programmers, but you know we had this generation of languages, but you had a, a third generation language and a fourth generation language. I mean, in the beginning, people programmed in very simple programming language like C or C++, and then you would program in a higher level. And then I remember the Japanese were the first to go to the fifth generation languages where you would almost just use you know, natural language to describe what you wanted and then the code would build itself. How did they lose that edge in 20 years? I mean, if you're the number one automation in industrial in the world, and you are like the most advanced nation in terms of computer science, how can 20 years later, the realization is they don't have the necessary skills in terms of artificial intelligence and automation? That just seems really weird. Did you have any idea why that happened? I've seen a few things. Uh, first of all, it's a total lack of ambition. What I said earlier, like they don't brag, they're not pride of something. I haven't really felt like this is what we want to go for. And we also saw uh, the managing director of Adidas, who's a Belgian guy in Japan last week. And he also explained like we are a society of consensus. And it's a really weird thing to have on the one hand, the boss decides everything you should do everything for the hierarchy that you can possibly can. But on the other side, we want to be involved. So that is really counterintuitive and not working to come up with an ambitious plan because nobody in the end is talking to each other or doing anything. So making sure that you go through that in a way that you install a culture that does share new ideas, that does welcome diverse opinions, I think they really lost that. I think some Opinions are just simply not set in a lot of companies or ambitions are not stated and that's holding them back structurally. Another part is, is if you look at the economics, salaries haven't increased in 25 years and that's because they focused a lot on cost cutting. So I think if you take that first culture part and you combine it with cost cutting with a context where it was a, like maintain instead of growth attitude, I think that hasn't helped either. Yeah, and I think the on on the um, and maybe that boils back to the prior point on why don't they make babies? But how have they managed to sort of have stable growth there? Is because a lot of women have entered the workforce in the last twenty years as well. They can't decide anything eh, because they are not in in the deciding functions, but they are at work. They are struggling to make everything get together to make sure that kids are at school or daycare, etc. So a lot of people are also not only from the men's side going out, but just women, I think, that say, hey, this is just too heavy to combine. And so I think those are a few elements that haven't really been in favor of new things and new innovation. And I think what really has been very painful is they were almost the largest economy in the world at a certain point, uh, close to being number one, and they've been number two for a very long time. Yep. And they always all refer to the end of the bubble. It's like when the whole stock market collapsed and for them, it's like the end of an era and it created so much uncertainty that they start to look for stable positions. So the, the typical career path is you study for four years and then you start to work for Toyota or Nintendo or any large corporation and you start at the bottom. And if you're lucky, you can grow your way up. You don't jump your way up, but you just slowly work your way up. And that now is seen as the most perfect growth path of a young professional. Have you guys been in Japan, uh, Peter Pascal Laurence? Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. I haven't. Have you found one thing in their culture that is the same as in our culture? Because I'm still looking 
for something that is similar. Uh, we, we heard so many differences. Like Italian restaurants, pizzas, pizza. <laughs> yeah, pizza, pizza and uh, the schnitzels are better in, uh, in Japan. <laughs> but it's very, it's very strange because everything is different. Like when we have a meeting in Europe or in North America, we always have like a commercial goal. We want to have a next step in the meeting. Their goal in the meeting is information gathering. Can we trust this person? Uh, so patience is very important and we are very impatient. But like mergers and acquisitions, selling your company, that was for me really eye-opening. If people here have an exit, uh, it's all over the news and we're congratulating people who said, you've did it, so it's been a success story. If you sell your company in Japan, you're seen as the biggest loser of the planet because it means that you're not capable of doing it on your own. You needed help. So selling is terrible. That's also the reason why they don't have that startup ecosystem and investment ecosystem like we see in other parts of the world. Like I, I, I did some research before we went to, to Japan and they have, the last few years, they had about 2,000, 2,200 startups. It's nothing. Can you imagine that for a country that is the third largest economy in the world? Mm. That is, that is in, in Silicon Valley, it's 50, 60,000 startups. In all other places, they have more startups. I don't know if this is true, Stephen, but I, I actually heard a story once that there isn't actually a Japanese word for entrepreneur, and that hmm. the closest translation that you have of, of what we typically would call a startup entrepreneur, the closest translation is a combination of Japanese words, that if you translate that into English, it says, the person who has not established a connection with the established world of business yet. I mean, who wants to be that? I mean, you're almost a loser <laughs> from the beginning yeah. because you haven't connected to the real world of business yet. Very risk averse, eh? extremely yeah. risk averse. I think that's the big difference with China in general. Eh? It's, uh, I mean, they're very entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's completely different than China. It's Everything is different than China. But the one thing that is similar is Japan, and we always forget that, but also has had a technology war with the U.S. at one point, where it was more difficult to get uh, Japanese products in the U.S., cars, chips, all these things that they were so much better at, suddenly what closed off. And and the reaction that China did and that you, that Japan did was, was the opposite. I mean, Japan was really, okay, we need to protect ourselves, we need to save costs, we need to be careful, we need to save our companies. In China, it's like, well, we're just going to do the same thing and we're going to go faster and we're going to do more. And, and so I think the reaction is different, mm -hmm. but they have the same, the same problem that China has today. And the interesting thing is that the U.S. did this in the 90s and, and even in the 80s, but specifically in the 90s. And now they're doing that all over again with China. So they're assuming it's going to work as well. That's my feeling. And China used to be, I mean, it's now the second biggest economy and Japan used to be much bigger than China before. Just as overtook Japan. It's also, hundred. I think it's 120 million people or something like that. I don't know how many people in Japan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah about that. That's just one-tenth of China. So it's still a very, very different beast. But indeed, I think the protection... Uh, I'm not a Japan expert, but the protection, I studied Japanese there one year, so I don't know some Japanese, but that's a long time ago. But I think the protection and the, the internal safety net that they're looking for is what they, they went for. And, and that's probably not the best way when the world around you changes. That's true. But we had the feeling after the end of the week that, that they're at a, 
a fundamental point. They're like at a crossroads yeah? because yeah. the guys from the government, they want to become a startup nation and they position it as you need to start with innovation. And now that's acceptable because the government asks it. Mm -hmm. So it's helping your country if you start a company now, which is changing the mindset. And you feel how they want to catch up with things. So one of the great words that I learned is time machine investing. Hmm. Um, we met a couple of people who were very, very bullish to invest right now in Japan because they said basically in terms of digital and innovation, they're five to 10 years behind the US, uh, for instance. So what some of those US VCs that came over from Silicon Valley are doing is they look at software, they look at applications that were successful in the US, and then they copy paste it to Japan, they customize it a little bit, and they invest in those companies. And that goes sky high. In two or three years, they get valuations that are times two, times three. So it's super, super interesting to invest in those time machine products. So you feel how they're catching up. You feel how the government is doing things. You feel how they're thinking about changing a number of items. Immigration will remain a problem because they're very strict in that. Like, we're not going to learn English. English is very bad in Japan, as, mm -hmm. as you know. It's probably the worst English quality of all the countries I've been to around the world. But they're like, if you if you want to come here, you have to study here and you have to learn Japan, Japanese. Uh, Japanese. Otherwise, you won't be successful here if you don't learn Japanese. Uh, if you compare that with how sensitive it is in Belgium to say that people need to learn Dutch, there it's no discussion. If you want to work here, you need to speak Japanese. So it's 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 interesting. It's a crossroad. It could change in the next five to 10 years or it could yeah. be yeah. status quo uh, for the next 10 years. We don't know yet. A lot of startups are also actually working with international, like a lot of international people are coming to Japan, then working with somebody who speaks Japanese and is alive and, and works and lives in uh, in Japan, way easier to open bank accounts, to start companies, etc. So I think from, that's not like immigrating and do the whole thing from scratch, but it's really like co-creating with uh, the local communities, that's where you sort of see the communities and the entrepreneurs rising today. Uh, so I think those collaborations are definitely important. Because the second thing is the younger generation, there you could see that spark of, we want to do this differently. We are aware of that issue. And it's indeed, you see the first small steps. It's not there yet. It's not in the large corporates yet. But then again, There you have the government, as you mentioned, Stephen, really incentivizing really, really concrete matters. Like if you invest in a startup, if you start a corporate venture, that's what the government today is doing to kind of promote um, the collaborations with startups. So they are working on all fronts to sort of move it up. And what we've also seen is they want to do things very, very well. Once they shift, they go extremely fast and they execute extremely well. Uh, so we might see this from a distance and say, oh, this is all slow, but they're working on something. And it might be that in, in 10 years from now, we're like, whoa, this was a major long-term systemic plan and it worked. Yeah. That's, I think, the big question. Indeed. Maybe a, a quiz question for Laurence, Pascal and Peter. What is one of the main reasons that e-commerce is so low in Japan? It's linked to the culture again. It's not a technological thing. It's linked to their culture. Because they want to support the companies that sell the products? Uh, no, no, that's not no, it. No, I mean the, the shops, no? No, no, that's no. not it. Mm -hmm. Because of, there's no direct human contact and relations are important in Japan? No, no that's not it. 
Basically, it's because, you know, if we order stuff, we send it back like crazy. Yeah? Return rates in ah, Belgium yes. are 50% or so, and in Europe for Zalando and, and all these local platforms here. In Japan, it's seen as a disgrace if you send it back. It's not respectful to send it back. So they have return rates of 3%. But because of that, they don't trust the system because they want to feel things. But if you then don't like it, you cannot send it back. So it's like this catch-22 that they have with e-commerce. It's so fascinating to see how an entire nation can think differently. Maybe one thing to, to close our Japan thing that is linked to customer experience. They have a word that we don't have. It's called omotenashi. And omotenashi, you cannot translate it in one word, but it means basically doing everything in your power to deliver exceptional service without being asked to deliver that and without accepting anything back. That is a word that they have for that. And that's that's part of their culture. Uh, we've, we've given many examples now on how culture can work against you, uh, like with innovation and with e-commerce. This is an example where culture can really work in your favor. You don't have a tip culture. Uh? It's not like in the US. If someone does something right in the US, they expect some money. If you give money in Japan, it would be a disgrace. It would mean that you don't value their omotenashi mindset. And they combine that with another Japanese word is called Ichigo Ichie, which means cherish each encounter as it is the only one that you will have in your lifetime. So the power of moments. So every moment when you work with someone, when you meet someone, you only have that specific chance to leave a good impression. And that combination makes the service levels of an unseen level. Huh? The Japanese population is also the one with the highest expectations towards customer experience. They only give you one chance. If you screw up, trust is broken and it will take years to, to reinstall that trust. So the bar is so high that the way that people come to you, the way that people help you is sometimes even so good that it becomes uncomfortable for us because we're we're not used to that. The, just simple examples, huh? when you go to a restaurant, and we've been to restaurants of, of more than 100 years old, really unique places, the chef and the staff, they walk you out, they join you to the taxis and they bow, they keep on bowing all the time when you're until you're out of sight. And everyone is like that. There is not a single person that doesn't give you that exceptional feeling and that exceptional service, which is unseen around the world. And they don't speak English, so it's hard to communicate, but still you feel that positive intent to help you in a very nice, in a very high quality kind of way, which was unique to experience. It's also a reason why um, like that the combination of performance and indeed omotenashi why a lot of brands actually use it as a test market. I mean, if their products really <laughs> have the bar in Japan and in Tokyo, then that's a good experiment for what they want to do in other markets as well. Yeah, and it goes it goes very far, actually. One of, for me, the symbols of omotenashi is everywhere in the streets you have decibel meters, but like when they're doing roadworks, like in my street, if someone is doing roadworks, you cannot communicate anymore in like 200 meters from that roadwork because they're making so much noise. In Japan, even that is silent and they have a decibel meter there to make sure that the noise that they make is acceptable. It goes that far. It's amazing. Uh, can I add just one thing outside of um, customer experience, which is fantastic to hear is Japan also has some tailwinds right now geopolitically, which is not to be underestimated. It's the fact that the new enemy of most uh, I mean, Washington is definitely China. It's not Japan anymore. They've completely switched in who they want to be helping 
in technology development in the Asian region. Even South Korea and India is more difficult at times because they're not always uh, aligned 100% with the US. They still want to sell into China for South Korea. When it's India, they want to do their own thing. But Japanese, I can really feel that they're taking advantage. And you see in AI, in quantum, in all the things, the chip development, everything that China is now banned, you can see that Japan is actually getting loads and loads of investments and, and opportunity from the rest of the world. And they're taking that with both hands. And because they're so good in research and analytics and building products and quality, I mean, it makes sense for them and also for us to work with Japan. They're, they're basically cited by most Western uh, nations these days, while other countries in Asia are much more uh, neutral. And so that gives them a unique position as well. Yeah. And maybe one thing that they add, sorry, Stephen, uh, <laughs> one thing that they add also to the point, like what's the same in Japan as in China, maybe it's the focus on the collective. It's the focus on the we. They, they really do things because of the family, the company, the, the country, and not so much from the individual point of view. So I think it's interesting to see how these collaborations basically fuel uh, in both directions. Yeah. For people who are interested in Japanese business concepts, I wrote a piece about that on our blog. And Omotenashi is in it. Okay. And there are other things in it as well. So I will put it in the show notes for people who are interested. Fantastic. Thank you. Shall we round off the, Jap the Japan part? <laughs> Or do we have some One final remarks thing. from someone? <laughs> One more thing. Now, let, let's go to the US. Let's go to the Elon Musk part of our show. Laurence, you've been observing, you've been studying Neuralink and uh, the latest developments there. Can you give us a heads up of what you've seen? Yes. So uh, Neuralink is Elon Musk's uh, brain-computer uh, interface or BCI company. And for the BCI virgins amongst us, that are devices that allow direct communication between a brain and a machine. And now the news from Neuralink is that they have been looking for people who are fully paralyzed in all four limbs for its very first human trial. The study will take six years, and how it works is that a robot will implant a BCI, which will let these paralyzed people control a computer cursor uh, or type and communicate just by thinking. Now, this is Neuralink's first human trial, though obviously they already tested this technology in animals. Maybe you remember the 2021 experiment in which a monkey played a video, yeah. Yeah, the video game of Pong uh, using only his thoughts. And there has been, I have to say, some controversy around that because... Uh, Musk at one point said that all the monkeys that died during the trials were terminally ill and did not die as a result of Neuralink implants. Um, but there was this investigative piece by Wired that really uncovered that there were some nasty complications with the implant procedures that were very painful for the animals and they, that they had to be euthanized because of that. So I really, really hope for the sake of the humans involved that these complications will have been solved by that because that was actually pretty grim. Uh, Laurence, but what is Elon Musk's big plan with Neuralink? What is the business plan behind it? Well, I think that it will be phased. Um, in the very first phase, obviously, it will be about uh, giving fully paralyzed patients the ability to communicate. But he has been pretty clear about the fact that he wants BCI to become a consumer product for anybody to buy uh, at a certain point. That could, for instance, help people learn languages, communicate through thoughts, solve brain-related disorders like schizophrenia, um, help people with chronic pain, things like that. And then also that's second phase. And in the very long term, 
what he wants is that people will be able to save and to replay memories that you could potentially even download these into a new body or even into a robot body, but that's really long-term. But the real reason and an important reason why, why he is investing in uh, brain-computer interfaces is that he sees these implants as a way of enhancing humans because he thinks that this is vital if we want our species to really coexist with super intelligent machines. And what will be like the first application? Is it like targeting Parkinson's or Alzheimer's disease? Or is there like one first bowling pin that he is going for? I think that the human trial is specifically directed at people with ALS, that people are are fully paralyzed. That's really the first. And you see that with all the other trials as well. For instance, I don't know if you saw that about one month ago, we had these uh, researchers from UC San Francisco and UC Berkeley that announced that they allowed that woman that was completely paralyzed um, to speak again through a a BCI. I I, I recently saw, I had the chance to uh, do a presentation in Sweden and then the other speaker was Neil Harbison, and he's a cyborg that has a, a brain implant because he's he's born colorblind, and uh-huh. the implant allows him to see what the dominant color is in front of him. It's like pretty weird. He has like this arc coming out of his head, and uh, <laughs> he has an amazing presentation because he says, you know, growing up colorblind, he has like an extreme form of colorblindness. So that yeah, makes it very difficult for him when you're eating food and you don't what, know what color or you have to exit an, an airport and you don't know what flags. Are. He is, uh, he's, he's describing the complexity. And then he actually is an artist. And then he says, you know, I try to understand the potential of this and also to take this to the next level, because he says, I think there's a lot of things that we can do. And and to Laurent's point about augmenting humans. And he now feels that, you know, he was born with a challenge. He was born with a handicap. He is officially the world's first cyborg. But he says, I now feel that, you know, I am actually more than a human. I feel that we're augmenting the race of humans. And he has like a team of cyborgs now, friends. And some of it is pretty crazy. I mean, there's a woman, for example, in Barcelona who was captivated by the complexity of what happens with earthquakes and has implants in her ankles and feet that she is able to hypersense the movement of the earth and the rumbling of earthquakes. And it's like, it's like a, a, a whole, it's like <laughs> a whole a subculture place. now of people who want to augment. Cyborg subculture. What would you do, Peter? What would you augment? Imagine that you can choose one thing. What would you do? Well, I think I would really love to have super sight because I had a glasses since I was you know, 12 years old. And I hate the fact that when I wake up in the morning, I need to find my glasses and see where the hell I am and you know what's around me. I would love to have sight, but then not normal sight. I would like to have condor sight or eagle sight. Yeah, that would be, I think that would be Most. really awesome. Yeah, <clears throat> I would like to be able to read faster, much faster. I don't know if that happens, that's possible, but... Uh, or just not read it anymore, just like push the button. Just have glasses <laughs> that just uh, dis- 
tell you what I should remember from everything. I mean, just um, yeah. But just, like Julie said, I mean, wh why why even do reading? Why don't you just plug in you know entire yeah, Wikipedia? Yeah, that would be it. that would be way cooler. Right? Wikipedia in your in your brain. <laughs> it's not just consumers that that might love to augment everything. Maybe governments as well. Imagine if you could tap into people's brains. I mean, that could be an interesting development. I know some governments might be very interested in knowing what people think. I wrote a book about that, Pascal. <laughs> Eternal, it's called. Yeah, well, there you have your break computer yeah. interface. Uh, I could sell this somewhere, I think. <laughs> I would just like to add something to what Peter said, because I think that all the examples that you gave, there were invasive technologies, right? It's not something that you put on your head, it's inside of your body. And I had been thinking about that, that because you have two types of BCIs, invasive and non-invasive. And I remember that there was this um, example uh, from a company that sold bionic eyes to people who could no longer see. And it was really crude. It was, uh, you could see shadows, I think, but people who couldn't see anymore could start to see. But then that company got into financial difficulties and they discontinued their products. And so those people now have bionic eyes that will probably stop working at one point. And then they have two choices. Um, they can choose to have a very painful, apparently, operation to take those out. Or they could let them in and, and pray and hope uh, that they, they will keep working until a certain point. So I think these invasive technologies are kind of dangerous in that way because obviously absolutely right i mean if if the company that provides them becomes obsolete that's a big yes. problem right i mean now if, if you software have a, updates you, that don't work anymore. i mean if you now buy a or vacuum hacks. cleaner and and all of a sudden the vacuum cleaner company goes out of business and you can't uh -huh. buy the bags anymore then you say well screw it i'm gonna buy another vacuum cleaner but I mean, the best recipe for that is to build it yourself. So this is a true story. You're going to love this. So when I did my first <laughs> TED Talk, this is a really long time ago. This was like 15 years ago. It was TEDx Brussels. And I was kind of nervous because I'd never done a TED Talk before. And then the night before, there's a dinner with all the TEDx speakers. And it was really nice. It was like, I think it was in a really nice Brussels restaurant. And of course, this was very international and you had all these you know, speakers flying in and it was really a wonderful vibe. So as I said, I was pretty nervous because it was my first talk. And then I sit down to dinner and opposite to me is a guy who looked perfectly normal. And I said, well, you know, I, I, happy to meet you. And uh, what is your talk gonna be about? And he said, well, I lost my eye in a hunting accident. And I'm an electronics engineer, so I built my own bionic eye. And at that moment, I thought, shit. Well, I mean, this is a guy who is going to speak in front of me who built his own eye. How am I ever going to talk and then, that? So, and I'm going to talk about the new normal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, people don't use the word digital anymore. It's, it's really interesting. So that's the trick, Laurence. You build your own. You can't rely on some company that goes into, into default. Uh, uh. Of, of course, of course. Hey, Laurence, maybe a, a question about Neuralink. How does Neuralink fit in the entire group of companies that our friend Elon has? So, well, I know that he tends to talk a lot about saving the planet with his company, so Earth. Um, but we all know that he also sees Mars as planet B uh, in case that saving the Earth does not pan out and that he really wants to, to colonize uh, that planet. And so I started thinking about, well, 
What do you need if you want to set up a new society on a foreign planet like, like Mars? Well, the first thing that you're going to need is infrastructure, right? So what would you need? You would need communication infrastructure. Well, Musk has uh, SpaceX and its satellites. You would also need energy. Well, Musk a few years ago bought Solar City, which was then later uh, incorporated into Tesla Energy. And that's a company that offers solar energy generation systems and batteries for energy storage. Well, what would you also need? You would also need transportation. Well, Musk, surprise, <laughs> has transportation to Mars with SpaceX and possibly transportation on Mars with the Boring Company. You would also need shelter. Well, maybe boring tunnels could be a better solution for housing than building houses themselves. Um, again, maybe the Boring Company could play a role. You would need ways to extract resources like water, like minerals. Again, maybe something the Boring Company could do. Also, you would need IT infrastructure, like maybe you would need a smart operating system for your devices. Well, Elon Musk has XAI, um, the rival to OpenAI, that could maybe play a role here. Maybe you would also need a, some kind of super platform or super app for payments and for communication, booking, transportation. Well, Elon Musk has Twitter, now X. And the last thing is, well, in a really hostile environment with lots of radiation like Mars, well, it would be really good to have robots that can go outside in your place and perform tasks outside in your place. Well, Tesla has Optimus humanoid robots. And Last but not least, to answer your question, it would also be very good that you can remote control your outside devices like transportation or like the robots outside. Well, maybe Neuralink's BCIs could play a role here. And I think if you think about all of his companies in some way really tie into this colonized Mars mission. And there are a few other essential things that are needed to set up a society on Mars that Musk does not have companies for. But maybe I would not be surprised if he would ever invest in them. And that would be food production and medical infrastructure. But that's something that time will tell. But um, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. And he would also need Chinese. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, simply to set up the factories everywhere. But the good news are the Chinese are going to Mars as well. So they're going to meet each other there. So I, I think they can work together on Mars, just like they did in Shanghai. I, I love the idea of, you know, the payment processing on Mars. And I was just, <laughs> no, 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 it's <laughs> true. I mean, what would be the first thing that somebody would actually buy on Mars? Uh, because there, there's a thing that I always do if I invest in a startup, <laughs> I always tell the founders, there's something magical about your very first customer, okay? So if you're a startup and you're starting from scratch, there is going to be a 0, 0, 0, 0, 1 customer. There's going to be the first customer that actually believes you and believes your product, and you're going to get your first payment from your first customer. And I always tell startups to cherish that moment because it's vital. You've done something that for the first time you're going to get money from somebody else, and I always urge them to keep that money and frame it. So I love to walk into a startup and see a framed 100 euro bill and they say, that that was our first one. Yeah? And I'm wondering what would be the first product that they would ever buy on Mars? I would buy oxygen. <laughs> 
<laughs> the house? house. <laughs> you travel to there, you have no house. You have a problem, I think. Yeah, but I mean, if you're already on Mars, you've brought your house with you in your capsule or something, right? I, I started more, a bar. A bar? Yeah, I think it's more <laughs> trivial. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's where everything starts. Yeah. Spoken like a true Belgian, usually. Yeah, I support that. I Proud think that would be a very smart first, uh, <laughs> I already business. have a co-founder. Yeah. Karaoke bar or piano yeah. bar. <laughs> yeah. Everything. Uh, pianos, karaoke, Belgian beer. It will be amazing. I think so. Uh, Peter, to stay on Elon Musk, you've been reading the bio from Walter Isaacson. I have. What can you tell us about that? What did you learn that you didn't know yet from the life of Elon? Well, it was a fascinating read. So I was doing a podcast for the, the Belgian radio. So I got an early release of the book, but unfortunately they sent it to me in Dutch. And then I went out and bought the English version because I, I think it's interesting to read it in the original language. Uh, so I was the one who had to read it in a really short period of time because, you know, I think uh, I might want to reread it because I was rushed because there was a deadline for that podcast. But it was fascinating. It's an absolutely fascinating book. And I think my conclusion is I actually feel sorry. I feel sorry, first of all, for Walter Isaacson, so the biographer. This must have been a horrendous journey for him because Isaacson, you know, he's like the world-famous you know, biographer, you know, Steve Jobs, and, you know, he he's written about all these really big scientists. And uh, I think if you're human and <laughs> Isaacson writes your biography, that's like better than a Nobel Prize, right? So this is, uh, but the guy is 71 years old. He has a very rich career. I mean, Isaacson was the chairman of CNN. He was the editor of Time Magazine, and he's like well-respected, but he's 71. And he says, this was the most difficult thing I have done in my life, because Elon Musk is crazy. He said, I would get a text from Elon on Monday saying, I'm in Austin, can we meet up? And Isaacson, you know, being a brilliant biographer, spends a lot of time with his subjects. And he doesn't do desk research. He wants to really be there in the moment. So Isaacson says, I would fly up to Austin, get into a meeting, and there's a board meeting with Elon Musk, you know, some of his top engineers, but there's also Grimes, you know, his on and off girlfriend, uh, doing something creative in a corner of that meeting. Then there is X, you know, Elon's you know, young child that is just bouncing around, drawing on the walls in the same time of the meeting. And then he says, I'm 71 years old and I'm, I'm in this craziness. And then all of a sudden, Elon gets a message, a text on his phone. And he says, oh, shit. Uh, Walter, we're on the plane. And he says, then I'm on the plane, his private plane, and we can fly to anywhere. It can be China. It can be, you know, California. It can be Florida. But he says, I would leave my home on Monday and I would have no idea in which continent I would spend. I have no idea. And e Elon is not the guy who plans ahead. It's not the one who sleeps in five-star hotels. Isaac says, I had to sleep on couches. I had to sleep on the floor. And it was the most grueling thing. So first of all, I feel sorry for Walter Isaacson. I mean, uh, but he wrote a good book. Second of all, I feel really sorry for the employees uh, because Isaacson describes in vivid detail what happens at Tesla, what happens at Neuralink, what happens at Twitter, what happens at SpaceX. And often a lot of those stories involve Elon Musk being absolutely 
horrifically brutal with his people. I mean, he squeezes every bit out of you know the human talent that he works with. And you can clearly see how demonized he is because he can basically chew somebody's head off, you know, just completely destroy one of his employees. And then Isaacson asks him two days later, well, was that really necessary? Did what that person did wrong really justify your intensity? And Elon cannot even remember that he said that. So I feel really sorry for some of the employees in the book. I remember, Peter, last year we were at SpaceX and hmm. uh, we talked to some people who had been there for maybe six, seven years and, and they had regular updates with, with Elon. And, and he told us that on a Friday afternoon they had a meeting, they were stuck with something and Elon had a solution. Very simple thing. He said, we need more, better Wi-Fi somewhere. I don't remember the details, but the solution that Elon was like, why don't you put an antenna outside of a plane and see how it works. That can learn us a lot, and that's very easy to do. And uh, the guy said, oh, that's a good idea. We'll do that. And Elon says, when will you do that? And they said, well, Monday morning, first thing. And he said, well, it's Friday, 7 in the evening. Um, I suggest we do it Friday at 8 uh, p.m. You have one hour, and then let's try it out now. And they had to work the entire weekend. And for him, it was the most normal thing in the world. But they gave us anecdote after anecdote that his demands are so high. And when he has an idea and he says, let's try it out as soon as possible, as soon as possible means now, not tomorrow, not in four hours. It means now. And they have to drop everything they had planned and do that or they get fired. Yeah, and you really get an idea from the book is that this is how Elon actually likes to keep his mind busy because the worst thing that can happen is the moment that he thinks that nothing is happening, he's freaking out. He is completely, completely mentally freaking out. And that's why he loves those periods of activities. And he actually creates those moments of activities because that's what he needs to thrive on. So, you know, to your point, you feel sorry also for the families of the people you know, that work in there. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that will be my third category of, you know, sorry for everything. But he, I feel sorry for his family because, you know, he has a multitude of relationships which are really toxic. He has 10 kids and there is a fundamental belief in Elon that the world is going to pieces, that the world is completely screwed up. One of them is the fact that he fundamentally believes that our global IQ is dropping like a brick. And I mean, in the book, it's very clear that yeah, you know, he really believes that too many stupid people are making babies and not enough smart people are making babies. That, that is his fundamental belief that, you know, we're just making the world dumber and dumber and dumber because smart people don't make babies. And that's what he really, that's why he wants to go to Mars and see that as plan B. And what you see in the book is absolutely fascinating is he has 10 children of his own. He had 11, but you know, one of them passed away very early. 10 kids, almost all of them are in vitro. So, you know, it's, and I, I wouldn't be surprised, it's not explicit in the book, but that he used some sort of mechanism to actually select, you know, the quality of his children. But then you can see is that, you know, 10 kids, you know, with a lot of 
very difficult relationship with his wives and ex-wives. And then you would just imagine if you're one of those kids, what a challenge is that going to be to have a dad like Elon? Because he really tries. I mean, you can see that. But then again, one of his older children has completely turned against him. It's the child that became a trans, and he has a lot of difficulty with that. It's a child that not just changed gender, but also fundamentally believes that capital and the capitalist system is absolutely evil. So that this is the child that turns into the ultra-Marxist. Imagine that! I mean, The richest person on the planet. The richest person on the planet is your dad. And you think, no, capital is evil. Yeah. So you can clearly see that this is a... I mean, honestly, I think the Kardashians are going to look like, you know, peanuts compared to <laughs> the musks that eventually are going to make it onto the Netflixes of this world. So I feel sorry for Isaacson. I feel sorry for the employees. I feel sorry for you know his children and his family. I, I really, really feel sorry for Twitter. And this is the, the irony at the end of the book, because the end of the book, it's, it's kind of stupid to have a biography of a man like Elon who's only in his 50s and who is clearly not finished. I mean, Elon is not finished. I mean, let's be honest, Steve Jobs' biography came out when Steve Jobs had finished, right? But Elon, this is like, oh my God, this is only going to be this like- This is part one. Part one of a trilogy <laughs> or maybe a quintilogy or whatever it's called. Lord of the Rings. I mean, honestly, the, the, the biography in the last couple of chapters is, oh, oh, oh he bought Twitter and that ad is really going to shit. Yeah, because, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that is clearly in the book is, and, and yeah, we wrote a blog post on this called Elon's Algorithm. What he does is whenever there is something, he actually has the same recipe all over again. And the recipe is he basically... Uh, questions every requirement, but he takes out everything until he actually gets to the very core. And then he's had to remove maybe 70, 80, 90%. There's a beautiful passage in the book where he, he looks at a Falcon rocket that costs $2 million a piece to make. And in one grueling meeting, he takes everything out until the essence is there. And it only costs $200,000. So he reduces the cost by 90%. Of course, it doesn't work, but then he puts it back just when it starts to work again. That's, that's Elon's algorithm. And that has worked for SpaceX. That has worked for Tesla. That has worked for Starlink, but it's not working for Twitter because Twitter is not just a, an engineering problem. There is a lot of things in terms of culture and content and, and community. And this is where the first time Elon actually, his algorithm doesn't work. So I, I feel sorry for Twitter. But in the end... And do you feel sorry about Elon as well? You feel sorry for everyone that comes close to him? That is my final conclusion. I feel sorry for Elon because this is the man who I think has done more for our society than any in, in the last couple of decades. This is somebody who has you know, completely changed mobility, who's completely changed space. But in the end, you feel sorry for the man because you can clearly see that he is an intensely complex man. Even Isaacson says he's possessed by demons. And this is a man who feels that if everything is just normal, you know, there is something missing and there's a roaring fire in him to stir it up and just to do something incredible again. But you can clearly see the man is not 
at rest. And, you know, if I would have a son or a daughter and I have a choice, do I want to put on Elon mode? I mean, do I want my daughter to become the next Elon or my son the next Elon? I would probably as a dad say, I hope it doesn't happen because they might really change the world, but I don't think it's going to make them a happier person. So, but it is a brilliant read. I have to say that. I'm very curious now. Thanks yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. Very impressive. 700 pages. Huh? But uh, the nice thing is it's a lot of very small <laughs> yeah, chapters, so it, it goes very, very <laughs> quickly. Okay. I think that Isaacson called that part of Musk the demon modes. Yeah, the demon he? mode. Yeah. yeah. And and he, he says, yeah, I think Isaacson basically says he needs demon mode because that is mm. the moment when he actually brings out the best of him. But in, in the end, for the people around them, they fear the demon mode. Yeah, his brother calls him like the drama magnet. <laughs> I love that <laughs> sort of. I mean, imagine if he could like transfer 1% of his drama to Japan, what it would do with Japan. I think it would be amazing. <laughs> so, um, Hey, I look forward to the book indeed. And plus one on the empathy, because it must be so hard for him too to have nobody in the entire world kind of understanding you. It must be really harsh and it doesn't justify the things that he do. But at least I, as uh, Laurence also explained, like this is his reason mode. This is the world I'm building. This is the architecture I'm designing. Why is nobody getting that? Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at how he treats his employees or his family, actually he's just doing the same algorithm than he does with the machines, etc. It's just the same thing. Let's squeeze, 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 then add 10% again. I love you, I love you. And then he thinks it will be fixed somehow. But, yeah, um, you can also see in the yeah, book, I mean, he has, strange. he has very few uh, friends. I mean, and he's really good at alienating some of his friends as well. I mean, look at Peter Thiel, because he, he didn't co-found PayPal with Peter Thiel. I mean, there were two companies that merged because, you know, they both had payment companies and eventually PayPal. So, but he worked very intensely with Peter Thiel. I mean, they sold, you know, PayPal very successfully to eBay and made them both actually you know, capable of then doing what they've done afterwards. But even the relationship with Peter Thiel is really, really difficult. So I think he has you know, very few real friends. What is his take on governance in general? Because he has all these infrastructure things, he has all these, these initiatives, companies he's been taking, but like, what is his opinion about that? How should we rule the world? Is that something that has any reference in the book? Yeah, I mean, you can clearly see that his dislike for governments and his disrespect for governments is truly intense. And you see that, for example, because SpaceX, on the one hand, depends on the government because they are the largest contractor to NASA. So a lot of U.S. taxpayers' money through NASA is going to SpaceX. But at the same time, he needs uh, the authorities to make sure that he can test things, that he can launch things. And then you can see his absolute hatred for any regulatory body that actually tries to get in his way. We saw that with you know his tweets on Twitter as well. I mean, a couple of times when he says, oh my God, you know, I'm going to take uh, Tesla private you know, with Saudi money and then the Security and Exchange Commission just you know, basically slapped him on the hand. But he, he hates anybody who interferes and he thinks that the government is basically filled with an enormous amount of inadequate people who are just there to make his life more difficult. And then there is this effective altruism movement in Silicon Valley that was very popular a while ago. Effective altruism basically means a lot of smart people who feel that the government can't work hard enough or isn't adequate to do things. And their philosophy is, you know what? 
we'll make a shitload of money and then we'll do stuff that is good for society. That is, you know, what the Bezos are doing or even Musk that, you know, NASA is too stupid. We'll do it. Yeah. So we'll just find some way to make well, uh, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation and it's, solving it's, world problems. It's effective altruism, which is, you know, the last couple of years quite dominant in Silicon Valley. There's now a new yeah. phase, which is effective accelerationism. And the proponent of that is basically Mark Andreessen. And you can clearly see that Musk and Andreessen are very much you know, in cahoots there, but it's even an accelerated version of altruism, where in effective altruism, it's I'll make a lot of money and then I'll solve big problems. Effective accelerationism is different. They say, you know what? We're just going to use everything that happens in the world of AI today and just make it happen and make governments obsolete. That's even you know a whole step further. But you can clearly see that Musk is in that camp. Cool. And one thing is certain, if 200 years from now, children will have history classes, Elon Musk will be in those books or in virtual worlds or whatever they use, Dan. It's the person of our lifetime that will go down in history, I think. They will have to study chapter two, three, four, and five of Isaacson's biography. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that, Peter. Shall we go to China, Pascal? The chip war is heating up. Yes, it is. How do you look at that? Well, it's been a thriller on itself just the past um, few weeks. It's been crazy. And the main thing has been the release of the Huawei Mate 60 Pro. I don't know if you heard about that, Stephen. No. So, of course, a new cell phone from Huawei. I would now That's... expect, Pascal, that you would show your version yeah, yeah. of that. Well, yeah. there's, a reason, there's, a reason, there's a reason. I, <clears throat> there's a reason I'm not showing it. It's just not possible to buy it. It's simply sold out even before you can try and buy it. It's gone beyond every expectation of Huawei. So they can only sell it in China because there's just too much demand to just fulfill that demand. It's, it's going crazy, this phone. And the interesting thing is that Huawei released, actually they introduced the phone on the end of August, 29th of August, very lightly. They didn't say a lot about it. And and suddenly everybody started buying it, but nobody had a clue how this phone would actually be looked like. And officially it then launched on the 7th of September, but it really is a thriller because it was launched the same week as Gina Raimondo, the Commerce Secretary of the US, visited China. And this was really like, you know, the bans from the US on on technology and Huawei cannot get access to anything anymore. Uh, High-end chips, uh, tools, software, of course, uh, everything related to market in the US. I mean, Huawei is completely banned from Android, whatever. So making a 5G phone in the country that has the most 5G base stations in the world is not possible for Huawei anymore. And suddenly, early September, they release a 5G phone. And so they do it on the same week that this uh, Commerce Secretary is visiting the US and they're taking pictures, imagine, with Huawei's Mate 60 Pro of her visit and then posting it online and basically making memes of it as if she has been to China to promote this Huawei phone. I mean, this was completely exploding everywhere. Uh, Everybody was talking about it. And the result of it is that the US, so she went back to the US and then constantly was started, directly started an investigation. 
How did Huawei get a 5G phone? I mean, they can't buy these chips. So what did they do? Did they steal the chips? Did they steal the machinery from ASML somewhere? Did TSMC still sell them some? What, what happened? And so they took the phone apart. They could buy one. <laughs> they could, took the phone apart. Many analysts did. And they figured out the chip was made in China. And this exploded in Washington. It's the Kirin 9000. Uh, it's been designed by Huawei's high silicon. And it's been uh, manufactured by SMIC, the biggest uh, factory of or, or fab in, in China for chips. And SMIC can only do 14 nanometers because they are only using DUV machines. They cannot get the ASML EUV machines, so the extreme ultraviolet. And so uh, these lithography machines that they use are old. And so how did they get to 7 nanometer? Well, they use a special process called N plus 2, to kind of do this process two, three times to get from 14 to 7 nanometers. Now, TSMC has done this before. It's not the first time that it's done, and the yield was very low. So everybody was saying, well, they just did this for this launch, but they're going to be able to just get like a few hundreds, thousands of chips, and then, then it's over. Huawei claims next year they're going to sell 70 million phones, and much of it will be the Mate 60 Pro. How are they going to do it? So nobody has any idea how Huawei actually has figured out how to do this on a capacity level. And so this is making the US extremely worried right now. She went back and she said, we need to increase the bans on, on Huawei, but what more can they do? I mean, they've already banned Huawei from everything. So what, what else are they gonna do? And so the thing is that really the Chinese felt a national pride. And this was their, I would call it the checkmate 60 Pro moment, uh, where Huawei really showed that every Chinese could now build, despite the bans from the US, their own chips. And the interesting thing is in um, the Huawei Connect, which was on the 25th of September, just uh, recently, they announced lots and lots of products. They even announced a new car that will compete with Tesla, just to keep on the Elon Musk story. So Huawei is going to build a car now. But they announced lots and lots of products, and they were completely silent about the Mate 60 Pro, about what was inside and how it was done. So there's so many rumors, so many people talking about it, but nobody really knows what's going on. And the interesting thing about that is that it sells like pancakes. It's crazy. I mean, if in seconds they get sold, so, and it's constantly delivery of this product, but every time there's like 10,000 or 100,000 available, the next, in 20 seconds, they're all sold out. So we won't get the phone very quickly. But it's quite interesting, this ban, because it's the first time that Chinese feel that they have actually um, responded to the U.S. threat. And it also means that now the U.S. Is, is trying to look at ways to increase that. So it's heating up this chip war. The chip war is going really, really crazy. I can only imagine, Pascal, that you know, people or companies like ASML, who actually provide the machinery to make these chips, are now getting yes. very, very interested how they've actually used you know that equipment. These yep. older you know machines actually make the extremely you know high. Yep. Uh, how, how did the ASML react to this? Well, ASML and the CEO, uh, he he basically before already was saying we should not do this full ban on China because the only thing we're asking them to do is to develop it themselves because they have no more option. They have no more alternative than develop it themselves. And so he was already uh, very, very concerned many years back. But now there's even more things. China is now building a giant chip factory by Tsinghua University. It's a particle accelerator where they're not building the ASML 
EUV lithography uh, machines, but they're actually building a huge two basketball fields giant chip factory to have all the Chinese companies, the design companies that want to build chips go there. And this accelerator is, is basically an electron beam that provides a high quality light source for on-site chip manufacturing. It's, it's crazy. It's like a huge accelerator to get this EUV light out. And so this is really where they're now changing the whole paradigm. Instead of competing with ASML and building machines, they're now building cities. They're going to build cities uh, where everybody's going to go around the city. And these uh, it, it's, it's a complex system. Uh, it's called SSMB, steady state micro bunching. I'm not an expert in this, but it's a new way that the energy gets released by uh, these charged particles during the acceleration. And, and by doing that, it can act as a light source. And so it's a light source. Uh, I, you could call it light source as a service in China. So if you want to go and build chips, you go to, and it's going to be built in Xiongang. Xiongang is this new city close to Beijing that is completely built from scratch. The, the city of the future. Sounds like and a place so we have to go, Julie. Mm. Note it. Uh, yeah, we should go there one time. But it, it's, it's so amazing that the Chinese are constantly trying to figure out how can we get uh, beyond this band. And I think mm, Huawei, what they did is just, just slap in the face to Washington. And Washington is now considering doing more bands and more limitations on chips. They're even going to go at lower end chips now. I, I've heard the rumor, which is completely insane because that's not a threat to the military. But that's the other thing with the military. Once you can build seven nanometer, even if the yield is low, I mean, you're starting to get really, really powerful because that was the whole intention of this band so that Huawei would not, and China would not be able to build high end chips to stay behind uh, the US on military development. And they were saying that China was like 10 years behind. Now with this thing happening in, with Huawei, if they really can do it at scale, which is still the question, then we're talking about three to four years. And so that is getting more and more close. So I'm very excited about this because even in Europe with the electrical vehicles, I mean, you see it everywhere. We're trying to ban everybody we can, of everything we can coming from China. And it doesn't seem to be working very much. And Europe, Ursula von der Leyen, when she was saying, we're going to now look into the subsidies that, uh, that uh, China has given to the, to the electrical cars coming into Europe and they're flooding our European markets and we're going to make them more expensive. I mean, it's just crazy, but I would like your opinion on that. What, what do you think about these bans? Because I'm really thinking the same thing will happen as what happened on the chips, except we don't have the same level of, of quality in cars as the, the, the rest of the world has in chip development. My personal take on this, Pascal, and I think uh, I remember the panic in the U.S. I mean, early COVID, when we saw all these U.S. measures taking place, where you had uh, massive investments in the U.S. to try and catch up to China again, and at the same time putting all these bans in place, my reaction then was... I think this is exactly what China needs as a kick in the butt to just say, you know yep. what, we'll be completely independent. And I think what you yep. just talked about just shows that, right? They take yep. old equipment, turn it into something revolutionary. And I think this shows the innovation potential and the creativity that the Chinese had. So mm -hmm. maybe in hindsight, what the US did was the best thing for China to make them completely independent. The only downside of this is that it polarizes the world into two technology stacks. Yep. You're going to have a Western technology stack and you're going to have an Eastern technology stack and they're drifting apart further and further. And you know, if I would be a, a Muskian 
Newtonian with, you know, extended effective accelerationism in my mind, I would say that's a bad idea if you have two technology yep. stacks on one planet. But I think for this China, what, um, it's the best thing that happened. Yeah, this is what Ian Bremmer says as well. He's called it the technopolar world. And, and it looks like we're more and more getting into that direction where there's two technology stacks. But also every chip company, I mean, Intel, NVIDIA, I mean, Qualcomm, all of them have been lobbying in the US not to do this because they know that not only is going it hurt their own revenue, but it is disrupting this whole supply chain, which ultimately people will have to wait for cars. They're going to have to wait for other things. And that gives the paradox, gives China more time actually to catch up with the US because we're slowing down the technology evolution, mm -hmm. which is completely insane these days. I also think that a really important part is, is that um, China has a lot of the raw materials that we need to create batteries for EVs and a lot of the raw materials that are needed for creating chips like gallium and, and, and germanium. And, and if we ban things and, and they might retaliate and say, well, you yeah. can no longer have sure. these raw materials. And, and, and they will. They will retaliate at one point if they feel that's their only option. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, they have these ecosystems that they've built that has taken de a decade to build. And I think that's something that we also forget, that they've done the hard work that we don't want to do. It wasn't always the, the nicest way to do it, but they've built complete ecosystem, making them dependent or making us dependent on China. And we have very little alternative these days. Replicating that is going to take us 10 years. And then in 10 years, who knows? We might not be using electrical vehicles with batteries anymore. So why are we going to replicate whatever China did? So it's a really interesting point. It also shows a little bit the, the, the European weakness, I think. If, if you look at the car situation, yep. I mean, we had some of the leading car brands in the world, most premium car brands in the world are European. But they were way too slow in starting to invest and develop EVs, uh, didn't believe in, in Tesla, didn't believe in this fast transformation. Yes. And now that they are behind and you see that there's yeah, uh, Chinese alternatives coming in, we punish the Chinese companies. But reality is if our companies would have been faster, invested in the right things earlier on, maybe it wouldn't be a problem today. Yeah, it's speed is one thing, but there's there's one other things which I think it's about emotions and and customers. So, and this is your field. The, the customers buying a BMW expect something that looks like a BMW, and so what they did in the beginning was to put a battery in an existing car that looks exactly what the customer expected. And the problem with that is that EVs is a completely new market, and so you have to redesign the whole car for that new market that has a new expectation. And European cars manufacturers and American car manufacturers did not do that. Even the Japanese did not do that. So it's Tesla did that. They started from scratch, and they thought completely the, this model out. But the Chinese did that as well. And I think that's a huge difference. But what I find also quite interesting in this whole debate from Brussels is that now most of the European car manufacturers and Tesla have been getting subsidies in China for the Chinese market. So they're going to be fined as well when they import their products into Europe. And all the Tesla 3s are coming from the Shanghai factory. So Tesla is going to become more expensive now if this continues. This is completely going insane. So BMW, Mercedes, they're all going to have to raise their prices if they want to put these factories back here. The Chinese are going to be more expensive. 
because of tariffs, the result is the gap is probably going to remain the same. And so why are we doing it? It didn't work when Trump started it. Five years later, we're thinking in Brussels, well, let's do what Trump did five years ago. We're going to try this again. So I'm, I'm puzzled how they can think this will save the workers because are these factories really going to come back to Europe? I don't think so because the gap will be the same. Interesting. Interesting. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Pascal. And with that, we went through all the topics of this month's episode of Radar. I hope all of you enjoyed listening to our conversations. Thank you for that. Thank you, Julie. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Laurence. Thank you, Pascal. It's been a pleasure again. And we'll talk again next month. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Next month. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.